0: Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. On this podcast, rather than looking at movies in terms of two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it, or hated it, we look at them in terms of what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We look at good movies, bad movies, movies that we loved, and movies that we hated. This podcast is provided totally free with no outside advertising, so if you enjoy it, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes and write us a review. You can also find a transcript of this podcast on our website, WriteYourScreenplay.com. This week, I'll be taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming to bring you an excerpt from one of my recent master classes. You know, writing for an assignment is very different than writing on a spec. The beautiful thing about writing on spec is we have all the time in the world to fully explore, to fully fuck up, to go in the wrong direction, to explore what the limits of what the movie can be, are, to play, and in an ideal world, that's the way we want to write. You know, most of the scripts that break writers in were not written in a weekend or not written in a month. They were written over years and years and made to look easy. (laughs) Right? And it's your next script. And unfortunately, also, when you allow yourself to explore that way, when you have the time, it also builds your skills. And it makes you much more likely to succeed when you've got to do these crazy 12-week turnarounds. Um, so standard turnaround for a professional writer whose only job is to write is 12 weeks. And, uh, and Mark is trying to do that with kids, a husband... A movie in pre-production, right? And a commercial, right? Um, Tuesday. So, (laughs) so. By August thirtieth. This is a real challenge, and it's exciting, and it's a real challenge. What's the most important thing when you're writing an assignment? Page one. Page one determines what they feel as they start reading your script. It's like the window through which they're going to view everything else. So it's like if you imagine you're going to a job interview, you can be totally brilliant. But like if you didn't take a shower and you look disheveled, you know, and uh, you're, you forgot to put your pants on, right? So the most important thing when you're writing this on assignment is page one. Remember, producers expect to have to give notes. And when there's a 12-week turnaround... There's no option that they're not going to have to give notes. You're not going to get a perfect script in twelve weeks. Period. Ever. It, it does never happen. So even Matthew Shepard, which we won a ton of awards for, and we did on you know we did in four weeks, which is insane, but we did a year of rewrites after that four weeks. But the most important thing when you're writing for hire, and quite frankly when you're writing on spec as well, is page one, because a producer is waiting. Well, actually, the number one important thing is to turn it on time. You are better to turn it in on time good than late great because late is like icing a producer, right? It, it, it screws a producer up. Um, producers are incredibly dependent on deadlines. So oftentimes a producer has a star interested and that star has a window from this date to this date and if they miss that window... That star's gone and the movie's gone. Or they have a director who's available during only this time. Or they have a, a financial person who's waiting for the script who they've made promises to. right? And so if you are late, late is always the worst. There is nothing worse than you can do than late. A producer, even when you are on time, a producer is always really anxious before they get the script. Um, I know when I was a producer, I was always really anxious. That's how I know this. First off, you're like, are they going to actually turn it in? Um, am I going to have to call them? Am I going to have to call their agent? Are they blocked? Have they even written it? As a producer, you're, you're, you're really freaked out. You're, you're like, oh my god, you have often spent a lot of money. Um, or even if you haven't spent money, even if it's a spec, you're like, oh, please, please don't let it suck. Please <laughs> don't let it suck. Because oftentimes, the scripts that you get from professional writers suck. They really suck. Um, They suck because the writers wrote them too fast. They phoned it in. They didn't have any real emotional connection to it. They're just doing it for money. They're throwing it up against the wall to see if it sticks. And when that happened, it creates a lot of anxiety for the producer and a very uncomfortable situation because now you have to decide, all right, do I still want to do this project? Do I want to develop with this writer or am I going to fire them? What's that going to do with my relationship with their agent? What's that going to do with my relationship with them? How much time am I going to have to put into developing this? How far is that going to push the project down the road? Is my boss even going to be interested in it by the time I fix it? How much of my time do I have the ability to fix it? We're worried about all this before we even get the script as a producer. And so when we first start reading, there are one of two things that happens on page one. Either you go, fuck me. (laughs) on page one or you go oh thank god on page one Mm. and that feeling actually happens on page one and that's why page one is the most important page of your script because page one allows a producer to go oh thank god so number two is the first ten pages because by page ten the producer, the actor, the writer, the director is already telling themselves whether they want to make this or not. They're pitching the movie to themselves. They might be pitching it wrong. Hopefully they are. Hopefully you got more up your sleeve than they're expecting. But they're already telling themselves a certain story. So you want to make sure by page 10 that they're telling themselves that story and that that story sounds exciting. We were talking about The Hangover earlier. By page 10, you know what the movie's about. Are these idiots going to find the groom? You know what it's about, and you also have a feeling of the feeling. What's it going to feel like, right, as they search for the groom? You know, I just did a podcast on Swiss Army Man. The Swiss Army Man starts with a fart joke. It's an hour and a half long fart joke. The whole movie is a fart joke. And it's beautiful and profound and funny and sad. And, but it all starts with a fart joke. And so basically on, um, it's called Swiss Army Men. The, uh, Paul Dano plays a, um, uh, a guy who's stranded on a desert island. And in the first scene, he tries to hang himself. And, uh, and he, as he's hanging himself, he sees a man roll up on the shore from the waves. And so he takes a step towards the man and he falls. And he almost kills himself. And luckily the rope breaks and he crawls towards the man. And, of course, the man, which is Daniel Radcliffe, is dead. And so it's like, ah, oh, you know. And then the body starts to fart. Oh, right. And, I mean, it starts to fart a lot. And <laughs> which is what dead bodies do. Yes, yes. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and by page 10, Paul Dano has ridden the body like a jet ski. And washes up on the mainland and begins this journey of becoming friends with the body and using the body to get home. Wow! And it's called Swiss Army Man because the body basically has – its it's natural biological functions are everything Paul Dano used to get home. That's amazing. Um, And it's really a movie about being an artist and it's a movie about actually having the things inside of you that you need. And it's a, mo- I guess so. a movie about being yes, literally about being blocked. It's a movie about the sh- you know shame and getting your shame out there and what happens when we actually put our shame on the page. Farting out the shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ca- the main character's journey is actually he moves from hiding his farts to farting in public. That is actually the character's journey, and it's <laughs> so. Beautiful. We all oh, cool. need to be able to do that. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it is, a big deal. it yeah. is. Very big deal. Yeah, it's 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 a gorgeous movie that started on the fart show. But why am I talking about it in this context? Because first ten pages, you already get it. Oh my god, I get it. This ridiculous he's gonna become friends with the dead body, and the dead body's gonna get him home. So do you see we're already pitching the movie? And you can pretty much do this with any movie, right? Um, by ten pages in we should be able to tell ourselves this is a story about a girl who or a guy who Uh, since this is an ensemble piece that Marty's dealing with let's talk about Little Miss Sunshine right one of the really great ensemble pieces Um, so if you think of the opening sequence of of Little Miss Sunshine every single character has a thing that they're doing that's going to allow them to win Dad is doing his presentation for his, his nine steps, right, to a room of, like, three people. Um, uh, Grandpa is getting high. Um, uh, the Paul Dano character is doing his push-ups. Uh, Olive, the first image we see in the movie, she's copying Miss America. Right? They all do their things. Mom is going to go get uh, Steve Carell to take him home. They all have their really simple thing that they want. And by page 10, we have that really awkward dinner scene where Olive finds out why Steve Carell tried to kill himself. And by the end of page 10, I won, I won, I won, I won, I won, I won, I won! And she's going. And the whole family is going. And we already get it. Oh, my God. This family, who fucking hates each other, is going to go on a road trip to California to go win a contest that this little girl could never, ever, ever win. Do you see how we're only 10 pages in and we're already pitching ourselves the story? And every pitch basically has the same formula. Every pitch is it's about a girl who, or it's about a guy who, or it's about a bunch of people who, or it's about a family who, or it's about two guys who, right? Right? It's always about a character with a dominant trait, a family who fucking hates each other, a, a sheriff who's afraid of the water who's got to stop a killer shark. Right? Um, it's always really simple. A marooned guy who needs to use a dead corpse to get home. A wedding party who needs to find the groom before his wedding. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, do you see how simple it always is? The next most important thing is your first 10 pages. And the reason is, honestly, a lot of producers won't read beyond 10. They're going to read the first 10, and they're going to decide they either want to send it for coverage, or they're not making it. They'll send it for coverage, or they'll pass it down to their development exec, and it's like, I like it or I don't like it. I can't tell you how many notes meetings I've been in where I've realized that the producer has not read the script. Mm -hmm. They've read 10 pages. And they like the 10 pages. Or they wouldn't be in the meeting. Then they send it out for coverage, and now they're regurgitating the coverage reader's notes to you. (laughs) Uh, Or their development executive usually has read it. Um, And that development executive has reported back to the producer, well here's what's strong, here's what's weak and now you're getting the notes, usually from the development executive in that case. So, um, all these things are important. Um, Paul Dano, I've been, I I just did a podcast on Swiss Army Man, so I've been reading and listening a lot and Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe both said they they decided they wanted to do the movie after reading the first page. It actually happens that fast. We're actually making the decision that early. We're not making the decision, yes, I'm going to buy it, but we're making the decision, yes, I'm interested. So your first most important thing is your first page. Your second most important thing is your first 10 pages. Your third most important thing is your first 30 pages. Um, the first 30 pages basically tells the, the producer, this is the movie. So by the end of Act 1, right, we've really locked in the movie. And in an ideal world, we are already taken it further than people expected it. So if, if the inciting incident is like the jab, the end of act one is the right hook. Right? The end of act one is the moment where you're like, oh, this is what's happening. So we're telling ourselves the story of the movie. Oh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be about this. And then, bang, that happens. Holy crap. You guys got it? These are the first three most important things when you're writing for hire. So we really want to nail the first 30. That's where the most amount of love needs to go. And the reason for that is because if you don't nail the first 30, you can guarantee they won't read the next 30. 100% guaranteed. But if you nail the next 30, they might deal with your bumpy 30 after that. If you do those first three on a first draft, on a 4 hire project, you've done a pretty fucking good job. The producer is probably pitching themselves the script, and they have expectations already. Now, I don't want to sell I, I don't want to sell this too hard because look, this is an incredibly competitive industry. And and my belief is that what we want to be doing as screenwriters is we want to be writing better than the professionals. Professional writers do this all the time. And there will come a time in your life where you get to sell out if you choose. But We really want to be writing better than the producer. So what I really want when one of my students goes to a producer with a script, I don't want them to go, what a great first 30 pages. I'm going to have to develop the rest. I want them to go, oh, my God. I never see a script like this. I never get to see something this good. I never get to see something this clean. Um, Because if you do that, even if the producer doesn't want the script, they're probably going to pass it off. They're going to call a friend. They're going to say, oh, my God, bring me your next thing. They're going to go, you know what? I could hire Marty for my next project because look what she's able to do. I would love that. Yes. So I don't want to sell too hard. I don't want to sell too hard. But I also want... Because sometimes what happens is when we have goals that are too big, right? we end up in this kind of state of terror where it's like, oh my God, I don't have enough time to do this. How do I fucking do this? So... I'm going to share some of the things that went through my... that I went through when I was writing the Matthew Shepard story in four weeks. I was scaring the shit out of John. Um, I was scaring the shit out of John because I kept on going back and recreating the structure. And primarily I kept recreating the structure of the first 30 pages and then the first 60 pages. I kept on recreating the structure because I realized that our movie and our theme was not lining up and I realized that there were weaknesses early. And I knew those weaknesses early were going to kill us later. If we don't fix this now, how are we going to get to the end? Right? Like, what's the end going to be if we don't know where we're coming from? Right? If we don't know what the character wants, if we don't know what the journey is, if we don't know what they've really gone through, how the fuck are we going to get to a good ending? I promise you, if we figure out the beginning, the endings going to come faster. And that's one of the things that is true. The endings do come faster when you really have all the elements in place. When you've really done all your vignettes. When you've really seen, heard, felt everything. Because you know. And you know the characters. And you get who they are. And it's like, if you want to you know, take the person you know best in the world. you know, I, I want to send my sister to the Wild West. I can do it. I know exactly how she'd be. If I want to imagine my sister as a, as a World War II veteran, I know how she'd be. If I want to imagine my sister in a sci-fi epic, I could do it. I know how she, she'd be. She's my sister. I know exactly who she is. And so those early pages are also where we really get to know our characters and become so much easier. Because if you think of the person you most love, I think of my sister and I go, oh, I also know like, how she needs to change. I also know how she needs to grow.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So... Sometimes we need to shorthand. When when we're writing on spec, and we have years if we need it to develop our scripts, we can really write from a purely meditative place. We can really just open our minds, explore the realm of where the movie can live and what the movie can be and what the extremes of it are. We can really be fully creative and exploratory in our approach because we have the time. And doing this will serve you more as a writer than doing anything else. It will serve you on every project you ever write in the future. You will learn the skills by doing. Uh, it's just the most valuable thing you can possibly do. Um, to give a little metaphor, we're, we're upgrading the whole back end of the studio. Um, we're, we have this program called Salesforce, which is extraordinary, which is basically within a year, basically everything we do is going to be automated. Um, but we're right now in the throes of, of integrating that system. And I've spent the last six months brainstorming every possibility of what could happen and working with these very brilliant developers to develop this system and I can't even tell you how much money we've spent to do it, right? So that my staff's lives can be more pleasant because right now most of their lives are data entry. <laughs> and. Yesterday was actually the first day of our implementation. And our Salesforce guy said, "Uh, yeah, you know what? Actually, the best thing for you guys to do is just try to use it and fuck it up. And in the process of trying to use it and fuck it up, you'll actually teach yourself the system and then you'll know what you actually need from me. And isn't that a great metaphor for writing? Is it like sometimes we try to plan it all We try to plan it all out and anticipate everything, but until we get in there and start using it and fucking it up and actually seeing what works and seeing what doesn't and seeing what we actually need, it becomes actually easier to do it by fucking it up than to do it by doing it properly. Now, again, we didn't just go, oh, here's Salesforce, this incredibly complicated program, just use it. We started going, I think this is what it is. And we started building infrastructure but there's a point that you have to jump in and go, okay, let, let me fucking do this and see what happens. Okay. So, how do we make this quicker? In the ideal world, we know what we want to do. We want to explore, we want to do meditative writing, we want to play, we want to find the limits, we want to do draft after draft, we want to have fun. But when we've got to be fast, we need some tricks. And the first trick is metaphor. Find a heart of the story that feels like something in your own life that you've already known. Somebody in your own life that you've already known. Um, A wish that you had in your own life that that you've had since you were a child. A fear that you've had. Something that's real for you. Because then when in doubt, you just have to go, okay, well... If this is really just a metaphor for this, right? If my superhero movie is really just about a kid who wants to be popular on the playground, then what does the character do? The first trick is just to find a really simple metaphor for the main character's journey. And if you're working on, on an ensemble piece like Marty is, ensemble pieces are great. But most of them, you'll find, are actually built around one main character. And then the other stories are threaded through. So Little Miss Sunshine is actually built around Dad's journey. He's the primary character in that movie. And all the other characters just weave around him thematically. And you can see it because Dad's actually the one who has the problem. Olive doesn't actually have a problem. Olive is actually pretty comfortable with herself. Mom doesn't really have a problem. Steve Carell has a problem. And he does go on a change. And so does the son. The the son has a problem. Um, But dad actually has the biggest problem. Dad's problem is his nine steps don't work. His book is never, ever going to sell. And he is so, his view of what it is to be a winner is so fucked up that he's never going to win. Right? And we see this at the very beginning. Like little Olive just wants to eat some ice cream. Right? And Dad humiliates his little girl over ice cream. Right, Dad's got a huge problem. And you can think of the structure of Little Miss Sunshine. You see that most of the actions are Dad's actions. Right? When they decide to go to the Little Miss Sunshine, he, it's not Olive, it's Dad. Dad looks at his little girl and says, are you going to win? Yes. Then we're going. It's Dad who does the thing with the ice cream. It's Dad who takes this little scooter and drives across the country. It's Dad who decides to steal the body of Grandpa when Grandpa dies. It's Dad who gets pulled over. It's Dad who decides to, that he doesn't want Olive to perform. Then Olive performs anyway. And it's Dad who goes up there and makes a fool out of himself in front of everybody with her. It's actually Dad's journey. And all the other journeys are just woven through. And if you look at almost any ensemble piece, you will find that this is true. Um, crash is primarily the story of those characters who meet at the crash. right? The African-American director and the, the asshole cop. Crash is actually primarily their stories. With everything else just woven through. Bridesmaids. Bridesmaids is Annie's dream. She's in almost every scene. Yeah. Um, but almost all of these ensemble pieces are basically it's one main character with the other characters threaded through. Um, and in this way, you can almost isolate that one character. Find that character who's at the heart of it for you and go, what in my life is her life like? What in my life is her journey like? And what that does is it gives you a shorthand and a way to focus your creativity on a particularly valuable exercise, on a particularly valuable area. So number one is metaphor for your life. Number two is theme. Which is related to metaphor for your life? Theme, 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 theme. Theme is so powerful. Now, in the best world, I like to allow the theme to emerge naturally. Because I believe theme is like therapy. And what I mean by that is when you go to your therapist, you're like, oh, I just do this weird thing. It's just this little thing. It's not a really big deal, but I'm having a little problem with relationships. Like, this small, right? Or like, well, you know, I organize things in a weird way sometimes, right? It's like you think you have this little tiny thing. And you think that's the theme of your therapy. Or you think, oh, I'm dating somebody horrible, and it's them. Right? Or, you know, oh, these bad things happened in my life. And then after a year of therapy, you're like, oh, my God, I'm really doing this. And it really goes all the way back to my childhood when I was four years old. And I think theme is the same way. So in an ideal world, for me, what I like to do with themes theme is I like to start by playing broadly. Just connecting about what my character wants and needs. And then looking for things that keep on showing up in the movie. And trust me, those are your themes. Those are the themes that the subconscious is dealing with. And so in an ideal world, if I have all the time in the world, I like to do it that way because I'm going to get to the real themes faster. But when we're working fast, we don't always have that option. Do you guys watch Orange is the New Black? Okay. They're in their third season right now. Um, I started watching it because Laura Gomez is one of my students. Uh, She plays Blanca. um, And she's wonderful. And she's so beautiful in real life. And they make her look so not beautiful. (laughs) Um, But um, uh, So, Orange is the New Black, the first season, had a really clear theme. The first season was about this privileged white woman who ends up in prison who f- suddenly finds herself in a non-privileged place right and the theme was about the different kinds of people right and the people that we that we look at as different from us right and it, the first the first season was all about privilege And they do this really beautiful journey where she actually ends up becoming a part of the prison community with people that she would never otherwise be a part of and losing her connection to her family, her privileged family, who is much more horrible than anybody in prison. And the whole first season is built around that theme of privilege. Then we get to season two. And what happens is they introduce a new character into the prison. And actually the whole feeling of the, the season changed, although it was quite good. They basically introduce a villain in season two. Um, a woman comes into the prison and starts organizing drugs. And starts playing the races against each other. Right? Um, and basically it's about greed. Greed. And power, and how the desire for power turns this oddly odd paradise into hell. And you can see how that theme drove the second season. Um, the third season was the bumpiest season. The season started, and we didn't know what we were watching. And then about halfway through this season, they found their theme, and they realized it was about, um, they were basically doing the labor movement in prison. So in the third season, Piper, the main character, starts a business. So basically, the the prison gets bought by a huge corporation and becomes a private prison. And they're basically using the inmates for slave labor to make underwear, which they're selling. And Piper, the main character, realizes that she can make money by stealing the scraps, making G-strings, having the the prisoners wear them, and then sending them to dirty old men for like $700 a G-string, dirty underwear, (laughs) dirty prison underwear. So she starts a business. And what we watch is, and it doesn't happen until about halfway through their season, they actually find the theme. The first six episodes, you're like, what the fuck am I watching? And then they find the theme, and you're like, oh, it's brilliant. Because on the big corporate level, you have what corporations do to people when they commoditize prisons. And then on the inside level, you have what happens between these inmates and what happens to Piper when Piper becomes business. And the other people in the prison become labor. In this season, uh, I'm only halfway through, but it's really good. In this season, they're doing racism. And the whole season's about racism. And that theme of racism guides every episode. And it focuses their creativity. So in a previous season, one of the black characters uh, has converted to Judaism because she wants to eat kosher meals. Because the, the food that, that, the, um, that the, the private prison has imposed upon them is so disgusting that the only way to get good food is to go kosher. So she's converted to Judaism, but she ends up actually becoming really serious about Judaism. <laughs> and it's lovely. Um, and so what do they do? They put a bunkmate in her bunk uh, who is Islamic. Who wears a headscarf. No. And what happens in the very first season, they're, this is just a metaphor for something in your life. So what happens between these two characters? The Islamic woman puts her shoes on the black woman's side of the bed, the Jewish black woman's side of the bed, the side of the dorm. And the Jewish woman doesn't want that, that Muslim woman's shoes on her side of the dorm. Do you see what's happening? Yeah. They're doing the Israeli crisis and in the, the episode that I just watched, they actually had a mediation <laughs> between the two of them. And they're basically, all the language is language of Israel versus Palestine. And they actually give these characters the best arguments of Israel and the best arguments of Palestine. And they let them go at it. And you see how that metaphor focuses the creativity? It makes it so much easier to go, okay, what's really happening with these mates? And you see they're doing the theme of racism there. The main character, Piper, who, again, remember, she is a a New York liberal. Her panty business, what happens is the Latinas start to organize, and they realize they can create their own panty business. (laughs) Right? And Piper doesn't want competition. So she starts accusing them to the guards of being a gang. And because because of racism, the guards start to stop and frisk... Only the Latinas. But that... And Piper starts a task force against gangs to basically enforce her turf. But all the women who join her task force are skinheads. So suddenly she is the leader of the... And they're doing Donald Trump with Piper. Right? Not the guy who planned to be a uh, you know Nazi sympathizer, but a guy who realized, oh, these people really help me. And you can see what's happening... They're actually doing the link between racism and finance, right? Racism and capital, racism and power, right? And so you see how that simple theme of racism made, made this season work and how the different themes made all the other seasons work, right? How, how clear it allows the focus to be because you just go, everything's about that theme. Everything comes back to that theme, that theme, that theme, that theme, that theme. That theme. Just like Swiss Army Man's about shame. It's all about shame. So, a metaphor for your life or theme. Those are two shortcuts when you gotta move fast. If you don't know what your theme is yet, look at the scenes that you love the most and ask yourself what do they have in common? What are they about? Look at the scenes that feel most connected, most surprising. Or the one that you know needs to go in your movie, but you have no fucking idea why. The things that are weird, these will lead you to a theme. So, when you want to go fast, metaphor for your life. Number two is theme. And number three is hook. Just coming back again and again to what's it about, what's it about, what's it about, am I doing that? So, these are the elements of the hook. The first element of hook is a character with a strong want. If you don't have a character with a strong want, you do not have a hook. Guaranteed. Doesn't matter how great your movie is, you don't have a hook. So the first element of hook is a character with a strong want. The next element is that they have a strong dominant trait. A sheriff who's afraid of the water. A dentist who's afraid of his own wife. Right, um. A, a stranded castaway. Who a stranded suicidal castaway. We want a strong dominant trait. We want a strong clear want. A strong uh, a. A, 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 a suicidal castaway who just wants to go home to be with the woman he loves. A uh, a uh, sheriff who's afraid of the water who wants to stop a killer shark. And the third element is an ironic situation. given their dominant trait and their want, what's the most ironic situation they can find themselves in? And this will be the beginning of your hook. And this will propel you through the whole first half of your movie. And that's the log line right there. Exactly, that's going to end up being your log line right there. So these are the things that you can use to speed yourself through. And to go like, okay, is this scene doing what I need to do right now? Um, All these things add up together, and you can see we're keeping it simple here. We're talking about three elements, not 152 elements, right? And you can see they're all related. Their metaphor for your life is related to your theme, your theme is related to your hook. These are all different words for the same thing. This is the most external, this is the most internal. So metaphor for your life is the most internal way of working. Hook is the most external way of working. And theme is the way that kind of bridges the gap between the two. But these are just three ways of doing the same damn thing. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. As I mentioned, we make this podcast totally free with no outside advertising. So if you enjoyed it, please subscribe on iTunes and write us a review. You can also get a complete transcript of this podcast on our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. And if you'd like to study with me in New York City, online, on one of our international retreats, or as part of our one-on-one ProTrack mentorship program, you can learn more about that on our website as well. That's writeyourscreenplay.com.